Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Aditya Varanasi is the founder and chief executive officer at Awarity. He graduated with a bachelor's in chemical engineering from Purdue University and earned an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. He spent 14 years at PepsiCo, where he pioneered new ways to unlock the power of digital media across a wide range of brands, including Cheetos, Cracker Jack, and Lay Stacks. After leaving PepsiCo, Aditya launched Awarity with a mission of making world-class advertising affordable to everyone. All right, I'm joined with a good friend, Aditya Varanasi, and I'm so grateful to have you join the podcast. Thank you so much, Aditya. Carlos, thank you so much for having me on. You know, it's interesting, after so many years, we grew up in Indiana together, and now we're business owners, and it's an incredible pleasure to talk about the work that you're doing. Um, you're located in Dallas, Awarity is doing incredible things, and maybe to start there, can you dig into um, your vision for the world and what you're trying to deliver. Yeah. You know, our, our mission at Awarity is pretty simple. It's, it's to make world-class advertising accessible to everyone. And we focus heavily on small business, but there's a lot of mid-sized business and even some enterprise customers that also utilize our, our services. And if you take a step back, just a little bit around the science of what, what we do, you know, when, Back when I was working at PepsiCo in, in brand marketing, we ran a really complex marketing regression around everything we were doing. So we looked at when, we did, when did we run TV, pricing promotions at different retailers, competitive activity, in-store merchandising, launch of new SKUs, just the whole gamut of everything that could impact a business. And we put it into a model and ran a regression and we we're able to assign a coefficient to each of these activities. Then we knew what we spent. We could essentially measure an independent ROI for every activity. But when I looked at the model and I was an engineer before I got into brand marketing, so I, I loved the idea of modeling. One of the things that stood out was it didn't capture the codependence of these different variables. And so we took another cut at it and we said, what happens when you run TV say at the same time as you have pricing, at the same time that you have in-store merchandising. And what we saw was that the product lift was actually much higher than the sum of the coefficients. And, and it makes sense. You know, I know as, as a business, as a brand, as a business decision maker, we want things to be simple. We want to say, I spent X and I got Y back. But the truth is in marketing, you're dealing with humans and you're trying to get them to do something new and different than they've done before. And that journey is not as simple as press the button and you get an outcome. There's a long and winding customer journey. So you take a brand like Cheetos. You may be sitting on, sitting on a couch, watching TV, relaxing, and you see a Cheetos commercial. And the commercial just reminds you that Cheetos is fun. It's playful. It's messy. It's orange. It makes you feel like a kid again. And you're like, oh, yeah, Cheetos. And it just reminds you where Cheetos stands out in this whole world of snacking, where you know, there's sweet snacks, there's healthy snacks, there's ice cream, there's a whole universe of things you can consume when you're looking for a snack. But Cheetos is so distinctive. And so that TV commercial is designed to just highlight those distinctive points that we just discussed. 
So it seeds a thought in your mind. Oh yeah, Cheetos. It makes me feel like a kid again. I haven't had those in a while. Then you go to the store and you see Cheetos on a merchandising unit in a high traffic area. And you're like, oh yeah, Cheetos. I was just thinking of that. Then you see a sign next to it says on sale, 50 cents off. And you're like, I'm going to grab a bag. And that little journey, while really simple, it's indicative of every purchase decision we ever make. There's an idea, there's an impetus, there's, some, there's a driving force, and then there's steps along the way that ultimately lead to purchase. And the data that we analyzed when I was at, at Frito-Lay PepsiCo reinforced that. You know, when you, when you hit people more times and you reinforce a message that distinguishes how and why you're different, that ultimately gives you the best chance of engaging that customer and driving a purchase if you're providing them value. And in the Cheetos case, you're providing value because you're making, you're, you're, you're candidly making people feel like a kid again for just a moment. And so you fast forward and you say, how do businesses apply something like this? Most businesses rely so heavily on digital channels. They rely really heavily on Google search, which is fantastic because when people are searching for a product or service or a competitor, you want to show up in those results and be present. And it's critical that you do that. A lot of businesses also invest in social media and social media can be great as well, whether that's meta, whether that's TikTok, whether that's, you know, Twitter, there's a host of social options, LinkedIn, there's a host of social options, but less than half of social media users actually engage in the platforms daily. And so if you're relying on just those two channels, your ability to reach new customers and seed that message, show them how you're new and different and can provide a unique value to that customer is, is hindered. So the science behind Awarity was to take what I learned at PepsiCo, apply it with the fact that most businesses are relying on channels that candidly have limited reach and offer a solution that allows them to, to reach more people still be very targeted, but also because this is now at the top of the funnel, similar to TV, be very efficient. A lot of the reason why most businesses don't invest in top of funnel marketing is it's generally inefficient and has a high, high dollar amount assigned to it. And so if you can't directly attribute an immediate result, people back away and then they pour more dollars into paid search when people are actively searching. But for long-term sustained growth, that full funnel approach is key. So at Awarity, our focus is filling that top of funnel and offering the best value in advertising in the world. And we do that with banner ads that you place on websites and connect non-skippable TV commercials on connected TV apps. And so our pricing starts at under $300 a month. Uh, our mission is to make this really easy and accessible to virtually any business that can benefit from awareness advertising. And we include creative in the banner ads as well to make this simple and turnkey because reaching the customer is half the battle, but equally important is sharing a compelling message that captivates their attention. You know, we see four to 6,000 ads a day, and it's really important that, that that ad is designed for that target customer and is extremely simple and easy to digest. So in a long-winded way, that's really what we do at Awarity is help build targeted awareness for businesses of all sizes and do so more efficiently than any other form of advertising in the world. So this is great. Tell me a little bit about AI and its influence on the decision-making from the supply side. So as you're talking about creative, certainly ChatGPT exists to summarize and it uh, creates generative content for folks that are trying to come up with better messaging. 
how does that work today? What is the, uh, the effectiveness of that compared to the, the nuance, the science of those that are creative today? Um, let's talk about supply side and then we'll talk about demand, demand side later. Yeah. So, you know, on the supply side, candidly, we look to apply AI where we see the greatest impact. And so when you think about creative and you run A-B tests, and we've run a lot of A-B tests. I've done it before my time here, and we've run it for multiple clients. Candidly, what, what we've seen is that if you're in the right zip code, different creative messages don't always offer a statistically significant impact. And so a lot of times you don't necessarily need a generative AI approach. You need to find what that messaging strategy is that works. And many times a simple A-B test can help hone in on that. And then you could even run, localize those A-B tests to different markets, different customer types, and, and make sure you're optimizing. But we haven't found that it truly requires AI yet. Um, down the road, we'll get to it, but we haven't seen the differential there where some of the other methodologies we have you know, apply. Where we do apply AI is the way we buy media is through the open ad exchanges. So there's, we work with 50 plus different ad exchanges through a, through a DSP provider. And we're downloading hundreds of millions of data points on every ad placement we run. And what AI allows us to do is read the signals of each of those placements. What was the cost? What was the quality? What was the domain? What was the targeting? read that and use AI that so that for each tactic, we're able to figure out what the minimum bid is on that media so that we can get our clients the lowest possible spend, the lowest possible cost per impression, and the highest quality placement. And that's going to vary for each tactic of each campaign. And so we're using AI because it's processing massive amounts of data and actioning on massive amounts of data in a unique way for every single tactic that we run for every single campaign we're, we're running. And that has expanded impact. So we're now expanding it into, and it's in development to where we can use AI to see how these different tactics are driving new people to our clients' websites. Because this is awareness, one of the KPIs that we look at is, are we getting new people to the website? Are we starting more customer journeys for our clients? And we find when we start more customer journeys, and if they have an established marketing funnel from there, they're going to start to see more conversions over time. And we've seen the data prove that out. So we're starting to use AI and we're in development to where we can start reading their Google Analytics data and looking at the different tactics and how those different tactics are ultimately driving people to our clients' websites that we can optimize against that metric. And we have several more use cases coming down the pipeline, which I can't fully reveal, reveal yet. But for us, it really comes down to how do you make world-class marketing affordable to everyone and do so in a way that's scalable so we can keep the price points affordable. And so we're using AI to take what would normally be a lot of manual analysis and automate it, but automate it to a degree of granularity that's actually difficult to match, even if you are doing it manually. Well, so, I mean, I think that this is where generative is interesting, where you know, a starting place. Let's say that there are five um, specific creatives that you've kind of launched and now can collect data on via A, B test. And then the iteration of that today is still manual, correct? Where you generate new content if these aren't performing. And so, or you maybe uh, create a variation. Um, mm -hmm. What's the role of generative in creating incremental improvements or variations to then automate A, B testing 
um, which I think achieves what you're talking about, which is, look, I mean, if there's some science here and now we can augment the uh, automated nature of um, the variation creation and then the testing and create that in one workflow, that seems to be achieving and optimizing a bit this this equation, right? So where we're actually developing generative AI, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a feature we're going to launch. Our goal is to launch it later this year. And we're currently on track, but no, no promises um, because we really want to get this right. Is where a business could come in, enter their website, and we would use generative AI to produce a full-fledged campaign strategy and customer personas for them. And there's still several of those components in development, but we have a very clear line of sight on how to, how to complete this. But this is, again, part of our mission of making world-class advertising affordable to everyone because a lot of people don't even know where to start. And so with as simple as entering your website, maybe uploading a customer list, with that, you'll get a full-fledged marketing strategy, customer personas, targeting recommendations that not only you can use with an awareness campaign, but you can easily translate to your other platforms. And we have a line of sight to automating, fulfilling those on other platforms as well, social and search included. Well, let's talk then about the decisions that are made along that way. Um, so from a, uh, again, supply side, talk, talk Talk to me a little bit about how you are making decisions, how your team is making decisions to perfectly craft messaging today. And, you know, how does AI affect um, positive or negative those types of decisions? Um, do you view it purely as augmentative um, where it's empowering uh, your decisions? Um, it can make things easier, faster, or is it um, able to replace? Um, you know, let's talk about the now and the, and the future. Yeah, so you know the way we make we make decisions on what we're going to prioritize, which product features we're going to prioritize, and when is we actually have a weekly review meeting, and it's the entire manager plus of the of the company, and we basically discuss any friction points from the prior week, whether that's customer feedback, customer feature request, observing a customer struggle with something during a maybe a dashboard walkthrough. It could be internal friction on maybe getting information to the right people. It's the gamut. And we track it in a spreadsheet. We score it based on impact to the customer, impact to our business, impact to our team. And then we rack and stack and prioritize feature development around that. And every item has a next step associated with it. And so that's where a lot of our key features, that's where, and then that feeds into our product team into our product roadmap and where there's an even more granular scoring system where we start looking at dev effort and look at ROI to the customer, ROI to the business, ROI to our, to our team and make our decisions that way. But I think what that points to tying back to AI is AI is only as good as the data that it's reading. And so the hardest part of the whole thing is you have to think about it going from clean data to automation to then decisioning better on the automation. And that's when you start getting into AI. And I think what happens is it sounds like such a big concept and such a huge undertaking to go from the beginning to the end that it can be overwhelming. And what we try to do is just prioritize the areas where we know we need to excel 
and say, how do we muscle through on the areas where it's not the biggest friction point? We already have a process that works. And so if you stay focused on just automating the things that you know consume the most time and energy and do one thing really well per quarter, over time, that leads. You know, when I started this business, it was basically me and my wife was helping a little bit. I had a cousin helping and we, we did a lot of things manually. Then we started to develop workflows. Then we started to develop low-level automation. Then we got the mid-level automation. Now, you take our reporting system, the way we reported campaign performance. The first campaign reports were me or my cousin or my wife typing in numbers from the ad spend, generating a PDF and emailing it with a personalized email. Now we have a full-fledged dashboard that updates multiple times a day and nobody needs, nobody needs to touch it. But that happened, that didn't happen overnight. That happened through a series of steps where we just automated different pieces of that undertaking to where we're able to eventually get to the full-fledged dashboard. There's a great role to play uh, here with data trust, data quality, right? And I think that, you know, when you're talking about this process, uh, process helps instill trust. Um, and so I, I couldn't agree more with you. I would like to switch a little bit to the demand side now. And talk a little bit about centralized data and the power of centralized data. One of the things that's concerned me quite a bit of the metaverse is the infinite access to all aspects of life. And so now you yeah. get into the scary elements of, you know, talking in your kitchen and that now makes itself manifest in advertising. Let's talk yeah. about, you know, how the perception of centralized data is affecting consumer behavior. Um, you know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, certainly yes. there's some scary elements to this and there's some lines to not cross maybe ethically. But then again, I think from the company's perspective, look, you've, you've signed away uh, your rights in these license agreements that nobody reads the terms and conditions when you sign up for an app or when you buy a device like uh, Echo, right? So like from that standpoint, what is changing over time with regards to the information that consumers are making available and how is that going to influence the way that advertisers can then create personalized messaging are we going to get further into that world of all data in one place um, and we've seen some resistance to the metaverse a little bit i think in some ways this is one of the underlying concerns of the metaverse is centralized yeah. data um, but you know, are there lines that are being crossed that consumers are pushing back against or um, and, and maybe this gives credence to this idea of, no, there's there are specific things that we need to get right. And that's what I really like about what you just said. There are certain elements of consumer behavior that were perfectly fine that yeah. uh, uh, advertisers can target. Right. And so right. talk to that a little bit. You know, whenever something's new to the market, there's a new concept, new technology there's various forces pulling on it from various angles. And, it, and these things sort themselves out over time. And we're kind of in a little bit of that, of that flux right now when it comes to marketing. Because on, on one hand, that data, whether that data enables a lot of things to be free. So there's a value in that. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people use ad blockers. I'm like, you realize that advertising revenue is what allows you to visit these websites for free and pay the content writers, pay the reporters, pay the people providing the weather infrastructure, whatever that might be, that's how they get paid. And so when you block it, 
you're trying to move the world to a place where we're going to have to pay for every single website, which nobody, nobody wants. And fortunately, the publishers are finally catching on and, and they're, you know, blocking traffic from people utilizing ad blockers. But I recognize why people want to use ad blockers is because on the other end of the spectrum, there have been companies that have solely abused this customer data and, and made things available that should not have been made available. And to your point, people signed away rights that they didn't know they were signing away. And that's, that's not responsible either. So there's a balance somewhere between the two where advertising can still be relevant without violating personal ethics. Like one of the things we do, for example, let's say we're running an advertising campaign for an HVAC repair company. Now, instead of using personal data and sending, buying email lists and emailing them, we can place ads on websites where, where people that might be visiting if they're having an air conditioning issue. Hey, if they're, if they're reading, if they're on a webpage that says, how to troubleshoot my air conditioner, capacitor went out, or you know, air conditioner not blowing, just find those topics and keywords that appear on web pages that indicate somebody probably has a problem with their air conditioner. We can place ads on those pages when they're being viewed, as long as it's within the service area of that HVAC company. It's anonymous. We know nothing about them. All we're doing is placing an ad that's relevant for the content on that page. That to me is a very appropriate balance to where that ad revenue helps that website stay in business. We're presenting ads that are relevant to the content on that page and the user is not exposing anything about themselves to do that. And, and so to me, that's the kind of balance and that's where we focus our energy. Everything we do is on an anonymized basis. Um, you know, we do have a product called Awarity CRM Connect where our customers can upload their customer lists or their sales target list. But again, it doesn't do anything invasive. We know nothing about them. All we're doing is targeting those segments with ads that that customer believes might be relevant for them. So it's, it's less invasive than an email campaign, but it is presenting something based on their, on their previous behavior in a way that, hey, they're browsing the internet, they're visiting a website for free, and they're able to see an ad that's likely to be more relevant for them. And I think a lot of us would feel better if the ads we saw were actually more, more relevant for us versus things we just want to ignore and feel like are, are a distraction. So I'm not going to pretend to have the exact answer on how this is going to shake out, but I do think somewhere between not exposing, because I think the customers made it clear they don't want to expose all their personal information to the masses. But at the same time, these publishers need a source of revenue and income to pay for their business there's going to be a happy medium somewhere in there where privacy is protected, but advertisers can still use some level of data that's not infringing on privacy to serve relevant ads. I think that this is a, an astute point where these are going to be parts of the bundle of the decision for the decision maker. Um, transparency and this responsibility that you're, uh, this, the, the, um, we talk about corporate um, responsibility and how um, we execute on that. Certainly regulation has played a role in this, let's say with social media, and we see kind of the effects of that. But I, I really appreciate your point here, um, which uh, alludes to transparent and a responsible approach towards mm -hmm. advertising. And I think that consumers' uh, decision-making uh, process will account for that. And they, it probably already has. 
um, people want to be approached in a very specific way. I'm sure that you can pull out examples uh, across different ways of <laughs> advertising where people feel threatened. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly have felt that way. And we've tried to approach this in our own company uh, with cold outreach uh, in a responsible way. Um, you know, nobody wants to get flooded in some yeah. way where they feel now threatened that they can't even go to the avenues they used to go for just communication with uh, colleagues, right? LinkedIn is becoming that. Uh, yeah. You know, from that standpoint, <clears throat> do you feel like there's a way to mitigate that? So part of this is, again, maybe value, a value-driven approach versus, you know, maybe an industry st standard for different things. But how do you think this plays out with optimizing this in business to make those types of decisions to act responsibly? Um, how does this kind of work across an industry? You know, I think, I think there's two parts to it. The way we make decisions here at Awarity is we put it through three filters and they're, they're simple. And it's one of the reasons I, re I love being an entrepreneur is to be able to make decisions that we feel good about, that we can sleep at night. The first question we ask is, is it good for our customers? The second question we ask is, is it good for our team? And then the third question we ask is, is it good for business? Is it sustainable? There may be things that are good on the first two, but if we can't sustain it because it's not economically viable, we can't do it because, you know, then the business wouldn't survive. And so if it passes those three, then we feel like it's a great decision. If it doesn't pass those three, we look at refining it until it does. So I think there's an individual responsibility, but, you know, this is also where laws and regulations come into play because unfortunately not everybody plays plays by the same rules. I think we've even seen with the way some people use the data from social media. Some people used it responsibly, some people didn't. And the people that didn't kind of ruined it for, for everyone else. And so there is a rule, a role for the right level of regulations and, and oversight to make sure individuals are not being taken advantage of. I think that advertising in general, um, you know, as we get into this battle between Google, uh, Microsoft, and it heatens uh, even more uh, from all that's happening with OpenAI, how do you think that uh, web uh, changes? What, what, what are the most magnificent changes that are going to happen over the next few years um, in this AI war? Um, what is kind of the nature of search? How does that you know, yeah. play out? Um, and advertising on these, you know, big platforms. The the biggest one that I think is going to be most imminent is the change in how search works. So right now, if you type in a search query, whether it's Google or Bing, they're going to give you the websites that are most relevant to answer your question. You have to read the different ones. You have to vet the different ones, see what you're going to believe, what you're not going to believe. What I think that's going to move to, and chat GPT essentially does this, is where it's just going to spit out an answer. And it doesn't always source, or should I say from my experience, doesn't currently doesn't even source where that answer came from. And so the challenge with that is if you're relying on a single box to answer the question and you don't have sourcing, how do you vet the accuracy? I know some of the early challenges with chat GPT is that it's prone to misinformation. We're in an era where there's a lot of misinformation going around on a whole wide range of, of subjects. And so how do you then manage the side of letting people make decisions based on the information that's presented 
to simplifying and streamlining that process where people just want the quick, easy answer too. And that's the part I'm not sure how that's going to entirely play out. But I see that as the most imminent change is that the way we engage with searching the web for answers to every question we could ever imagine is going to be dramatically different, arguably in the next year. So it's interesting to bring this up because I think during the World Cup, I had put in uh, one of the teams that Brazil was playing um, during the World Cup. Which, which team is better? And ChatGPT was very, very uh, elusive on which one. It kind of gave the this, this stats. And so there's some kind of um, dilemma. Um, and it goes to this point that you're making, which is um, people want strong recommendations, yet they want truthful recommendations. And so when you have information maybe that's populated that may not be true, but yet it comes from reputable sources, then it is prioritized as being the most truthful. And this becomes a very great challenge. Um, how does this affect the world of advertising? So, you know, we've talked about maybe the news, you, you know, that's something that's very relevant to us in our minds, but positioning and yeah. the ways that maybe data then flows through reputable review sources that then surfaces, well, which one is the best X product? And the idea that this might suggest one product over another seems to counter uh, the business model. It seems to counter um, some type of reason at the same time. That's kind of what consumers want What you know, what is the best, you know, air conditioning unit. You talked about that. You know, I, I have no idea which one yeah. is the best. And so then you have to search, you have to investigate, you have to explore, but at the end of the day, you just want the best recommendation. How yeah. does this work in this type you of want world? The easy button. Yeah. You know, I think what you just said though is indicative of, human psychology to degree. I think we all, we all instinctively want to believe we want the quick, easy answer, but you just said it. You didn't believe the answer you got back on who's the best team in the match because there you put it through your own filter. And I think until that, until there's something that passes that sniff meter, people won't wholly accept it. You know, and I think there's a, there's a company and I subscribe to it. It's called factual. And they publish a newsletter every day on the hot news topics. And what they do is they rate each provider with their lean, political lean, whether it's moderate, slightly liberal, very liberal, conservative, very conservative. They present that. They have a percentage assigned to their lean. And you get to read. And they, they give you three articles on that topic across the spectrum. Um, and you know, I won't get, I won't get into the specifics, but they found a certain side is a little less accurate with the information that they're presenting than the other side. And I asked the founder of it, I said, how do you reconcile that? That if you're going to say consistently articles that lean one way tend to be slightly more accurate than articles that lead another way, doesn't that inherently introduce bias? And he said, but when we verified the facts on it, that's what we, that's what we found. So we're trying to be objective. And sometimes Sometimes when the truth doesn't conform to what we want to believe, that's when we, that's also a factor with which we reject it. And so I think that's going to be a huge component. And ultimately where this goes is, are people going to accept or reject what's presented? And if there's a system that allows people to feel like they're accepting things that are generally accurate and rejecting things that are generally not, 
that'll be okay. But if it starts to get into confirmation bias where people want to see things that conform to their views, then it could lead down a different path. And that's where it's just unknown on where that's going to play out. Because right now, if you run the search, you can make that choice yourself. If a system's making that choice, then who, it's, who knows what, what, what people are going to perceive because everyone sees things differently. I'm, I'm passionate about this. And I feel like we, uh, you know, your suggestion, your idea around source validation, and more importantly, source presentation, uh, visibility. Um, yeah. And the way that we show this is going to be integral towards not only how uh, consumers of uh, information are going to require um, things to be seen, but it's also a responsible way to do it. Um, yeah. You know, ultimately, I think that where this shifts, and it goes back to data quality, data trust, uh, and transparency, is that tr there is a high bar for people to trust information at this point in time. And yeah. as uh, things are uh, pushed out, I think that uh, this is absolutely right, that that, that will then uh, help winners be winners in how they present data back. Um, Aditya, this has been a phenomenal uh, conversation. Any final thoughts on uh, where we're going and, and what are the things that uh, we should be thinking about um, as individual decision makers as we make choices um, about technology that we're consuming um, as it relates to advertising? Um, you know, you've talked about the ad, you know, ad blocker and some of the ways that we might yeah. make individual decisions, but what what are what are kind of some, some final thoughts on this uh, for well, the individual decision maker? I'll, I'll start with a comment about advertising. I'll start and then I'll finish with a comment about kind of the AI revolution. You know, I think when it comes to advertising, the the biggest piece of advice I would give people is it's not a binary decision. You're dealing with humans. You're dealing with human influence, and you're dealing with a very nonlinear journey that's difficult to measure. If I show you an ad that makes you feel a certain way. And I'll give you an example of this. We ran an ad campaign for a large national uh, convenience store company, and it was the lowest click rate ad campaign we've ever run. But the foot traffic data shows the areas where we ran media had a significant lift in foot traffic over the areas that didn't. So if you read this like a traditional advertiser thinking, oh, clicks matter, and we don't believe clicks matter here. We have overwhelming data to show that clicks don't matter. Um, but if you believe that, you're going to say the campaign was a failure. But if you look at what actually happened, it drove influence. And we had no way to measure that influence other than seeing the increase in foot traffic at the, at the end of the road. And so you have to embrace the fact that marketing decisions are not going to be black and white. Uh, the old adage that a consumer has to see you an average of seven times before they take action is still generally true, especially when you're trying to get them to try something new. And the other old adage of, I know 50% of my marketing works, I just don't know what 50%. I think there's a little nuance, nuance to that. It's not about working, not working. They're all playing a role, but sometimes it's hard to know exactly what role everything's playing and to what degree it's moving the needle. You may have a blog post that barely gets read, but the fact that it's there may have more influence than, than you realize. How do you measure that? And so... I would say right now, because you're dealing with humans, we don't have a way to collect data on human sentiment other than studies, and studies have a lot of bias in them, and they're limited on sample size. Think, think big picture. Think about reaching people an average of seven times. Think about making sure it's simple and succinct and measure data on a macro level. When it comes to the AI revolution, 
I don't think anybody knows exactly where it's going to go and how quickly it's going to happen. But what I would say for people that want to embrace it, that haven't started, just start with something small. Start with cleaning your data and figuring out ways to use that data to inform decisions. And if you just start there and you do that for a few months, you'll start to see a line of sight on how you can automate those decisions. And then when you automate it, you can start seeing a line of sight on how you improve decisioning on that automation. And that eventually, just that step-by-step-by-step approach gets you to where components of your business can transition to a truly AI-based system. We at drumdata.ai fully agree with you. And I think that these are phenomenal recommendations. Uh, Aditya, thank you so much for your time today and for all of these incredible insights and recommendations. Thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Kemeny. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.